Well, as always, we like to ask God to speak to us uh, through His Word, through His Spirit, uh, through us, one another, the church. And so let's read the words on the screen together as a simple prayer. O Lord our God, You have chosen to make Yourself known through Your creation, Your Word, Your Son, and Your Spirit. Now reveal Your glory to us and through us, the church. Speak to us, form us, lead us, Dwell in us. Teach us today how to love as Jesus loves, to welcome the stranger, heal the sick, and care for the poor, to bear good news, build bridges, and bring your people home. For Christ in us is the hope of glory. May your perfect will prevail in us this day. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are continuing our series uh, called First Love, which is going to culminate next week on Easter. And today marks the beginning of Holy Week, uh, eight days of remembrance following the final week of Jesus' life from the time that he rode uh, into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey while the crowds cheered, that's Palm Sunday, uh, to the day that he was nailed to a cross for the sins of humanity, that's Good Friday, and culminating in the day that he rose from the grave. That's Resurrection Sunday, or what we call Easter. And not all of the events of Jesus' life um, are mentioned in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But these ones, the events that make up Holy Week, are in all four, and they are at the heart of who Jesus is, and they are the reason why billions of people worship and follow, and serve Christ. Now, Jesus has been traveling throughout uh, ancient Palestine, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing the sick, and casting out evil spirits, and performing miracle after miracle. And this Jesus calls God his Father. He forgives people of their sins. And people come to believe that this Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the anointed one of God, who has come to save Israel. And after three years of ministry, Jesus heads toward Jerusalem, the seat of religious and political power for the Jewish people. And as they approach Jerusalem, we read this in Matthew 21, which we read earlier today. As they approach Jerusalem, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me, and if anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. And a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna means please save. Save us now, we pray. Hosanna, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. 
And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So Jesus comes riding on a donkey. Now this is highly significant. Because first of all, Jesus is making a statement about who he is. Hundreds of years earlier, the prophet Zechariah had prophesied that the Messiah would come in this fashion. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey. So he is identifying himself as the promised king of his people. But secondly, Jesus is making a statement about his mission. Because when a king entered a city in the, in the spirit of war, he would come riding a stallion. But when he came in a spirit of peace, he would come riding a donkey. Because donkeys are not very ferocious in battle, right? Are they? No one's going to see somebody riding on a donkey and going, ah, right? So here comes Jesus riding on a donkey. People are spreading their cloaks on the road, something that they would only do for royalty. And they are recognizing Jesus as their king. And they're cheering, Hosanna, save us, Lord, save us now. And they are remembering the words that Jesus first spoke when he began his ministry. In Mark and in Matthew, we read that Jesus announced his ministry like this. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe this good news. And now this king is riding into Jerusalem, the seat of religious and political power. And they say, it's time. It's happening. It's happening. We've waited three years. He said this three years ago. Now here it is. He's coming into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey. It's happening. Luke records it a little differently. When Jesus began his ministry, Luke records it like this. And it's interesting how the different writers focus on different aspects. It's not a contradiction that that they they write things. If two people told the same story, they would focus on different details, wouldn't they? And if you had to summarize the the, the life and ministry, three years of Jesus' life and ministry in in one book... You would, you would focus on some things and you might, you might emphasize this and leave out that. Well, that's what, that's what happens here. But in Luke's gospel, Jesus announces his ministry by standing up in the synagogue. He's preaching and he says, The Lord, Spirit of the Lord is on me. He's quoting Isaiah. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. This is his mission. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And this is how Jesus announces his mission there. And so people are remembering this. As Jesus is coming in to Jerusalem, Jesus comes to announce the kingdom of God, to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's all very, very exciting. A lot of bold promises. What does it mean? What exactly does that mean? What what is Jesus saying he's going to do? A lot of people didn't fully understand. They just said, well, that sounds great. Everyone had their own ideas of what that meant. So so let me try explaining it by 
looking at one of Jesus' many demonstrations of power. And we read about it in Mark 5, where Jesus meets a man who had been plagued by a host of evil spirits for a very long time. This is what it says in Mark 5. At one time, Jesus and his disciples arrived in the region of the Gerasenes. And a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot. This man is out of control. He tore the chains apart. He was, he was infused with supernatural demonic strength, and he would break the chains and break the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. And night and day among the tombs with the dead, that's the only place they would, he could stay is with corpses. And in the hills he would cry out and he would cut himself with stones. This was a man who was tormented. And when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and he fell on his knees in front of him and he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus? Son of the Most High God, in God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. Now, a legion was the largest unit of the Roman army, sometimes anywhere between 3,000 to 5,200 men. And so this man is not uh, tormented by one spirit, but by thousands. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. And a large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. And the demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. And he gave them permission. The impure spirits came out and went into the pigs And the herd, about 2,000 of them in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Can you imagine watching 2,000 pigs run down a hillside and drown themselves and now their bodies are just kind of floating in the water? It's this most bizarre, grotesque scene. And those tending the pigs ran off. Did you see just what our pigs did? They run off, and they report this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by this legion of demons sitting there, dressed, and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. And then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave the region. We are freaked out. I got some sheep over there. I don't know what's going to happen next. (laughs) I'm glad this man is free, but Jesus, can you please leave? And as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. And Jesus did not let him. He said, go home. Go home to your own people. Tell them how much. The Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis 
which is actually a group of 10 cities on the eastern frontier of the Roman Empire. So he didn't just go to his home. He went to like 10 different cities and began telling people again and again what had happened. He told them how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Amazed. Ah, this is important. This, believe it or not, tells us something about what Jesus was trying to do when he came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. You see, the Jews believed that, that God had called them to be a holy people. Now, the word holy means set apart, different, unique, separate. And for them, what they believed that meant, uh, being holy was to, to shun every appearance of evil by avoiding any kind of defilement and uncleanliness. Being near anything that appeared dead would bring on defilement and subject them to the loss of their holiness. And so the proper thing to do, if you were a proper Jew, was to avoid anything that reminded you of death and disease and decay. And so this man symbolized everything that was untouchable. And no one would blame you for staying far, far away from this man, for wanting nothing to do with him. This man is the absolute picture of absolute uncleanness violating every purity issue in the holiness code of the Pharisees. You have a man living among the dead in Gentile land, not Jewish land, but Gentile land, possessed by the demonic nearby to a bunch of pigs. Right? And Jesus is where? Right in the middle of it. And what is the outcome? The kingdom of God overcomes the kingdom of darkness. The power of God triumphs over the power of Satan. Something, is, something radical is happening here, you see. Jesus is demonstrating something about the holiness of God that was not fully understood at the time, and it changed everything. And to help you understand this, this idea of the holiness of God, this is a huge concept for Christians. I want to show you a short video. It's about five minutes long. It's an animated video that that explains what holiness really is. So let's turn out the lights, if you don't mind. Make sure the volume is up. Here we go. You've probably heard the word holy before, or at least sang it in a church song once or twice. And for most people, this idea is really just connected to being a morally good person. So God is holy because he's morally perfect. Yeah, that is part of it. But in the Bible, the idea of holiness is even bigger and more rich. What it's really describing is how God is the creative force behind the whole universe. He's the one and only being with the power to make a world full of such beauty and life. And so all these abilities, they make God utterly unique, which is the meaning of the word holy. So a helpful way to think about God's holiness is by using the sun as a metaphor. The sun is unique, at least within our solar system, and it's really powerful. It's the source of all this beautiful life on our planet. And so you could say that the sun is holy. And you can actually take this metaphor even further in that the whole area around the sun is also holy. Yeah, because the closer you get to the sun, the more intense it gets. Yeah, exactly. So that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous. 
I mean, the sun, if you get too close, will annihilate you. And in the same way, there's this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness. Because if you're impure, his presence is dangerous to you. And not because it's bad, but because it's so good. And so the first time we see this paradox of God's holiness, it's in the story of Moses and the burning bush. So God tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. And Moses covers his face in fear, and God says, hey, don't come any closer. It's intense. It's actually that intensity of God's holiness that's explored even more in the stories about Israel's temple, which was the main place where God's holy presence was located. And at the center of the temple was this room called the Most Holy Place, the hot spot of God's presence. And whether you're an Israelite living in the land around the temple or a priest working right in the temple, you're in proximity to God's holy presence, which is dangerous. Yeah, this is a problem. So how's it supposed to work? Well, in the Bible, the solution is that you need to become pure. So like being morally pure. Yeah, and that's easy enough to understand. But the Bible spends a lot of time talking about another kind of purity, being ritually pure, which is a state where you separate yourself from anything related to death, like touching things like diseased skin or dead bodies or even certain bodily fluids. All these make you impure. And becoming ritually impure isn't necessarily sinful. What's wrong is waltzing into God's presence when you're in an impure state. And so that's why God gave the Israelites very clear instructions for knowing when they were impure, steps to become pure, so that they could go into the temple again. So that's what the book of Leviticus is about. Right. But it doesn't stop there. This idea keeps developing. So later in the scriptures, we find this really interesting story by a prophet named Isaiah. And he has this crazy vision where he's in the temple and he's right in God's presence. He's totally terrified. Yeah, he knows the rules. He shouldn't even be in there. And he's worried about being destroyed. And then this crazy <coughs> creature called a seraphim. Yeah, that is a crazy creature. <laughs> totally. So it flies over with a hot coal. And then it sears Isaiah's lips with the coal and says something really weird. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. So this burning coal somehow makes Isaiah pure. Yeah, it's remarkable. Because normally, if you touch something impure, it transfers its impurity to you. But now here's this new idea where you have this coal, this very holy and pure object, and it touches Isaiah, and it transfers its purity to him. Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness. He's transformed by it. I mean, the implications of this are just huge. But there's one more development, this time from another prophet, Ezekiel. And he has this vision where he's standing at the temple and he sees water trickling out from it. And then that water turns into a stream and then it grows into a deep river that starts flowing through the desert, leaving this trail of green trees behind it. And then it flows into the Dead Sea, making everything fresh and alive. So instead of becoming pure first and then going into the temple, here God's holiness comes out from the temple, making things pure and bringing them to life. What does it all mean? So we don't know until we meet this man, Jesus. And he claims that he's fulfilling all of these ancient visions, but in surprising new ways. So Jesus, he went around touching people who are impure, people with skin diseases, a, a woman with chronic bleeding or dead people. And when he touches them, their impurity should transfer over to Jesus. But instead, Jesus's purity transfers to them and actually heals their bodies. Jesus is like that holy coal in Isaiah's vision. Right. 
And Jesus claimed that he was the human embodiment of God's own holiness and that he and his followers were now God's temple so that through them, God's holy presence would go out into the world and bring life and healing and hope. And so this is why Jesus described his followers as having streams of living water flowing out of them. So this is our part of the story where we find ourselves now, but where's this all heading? So the last pages of the Bible end with a final vision about God's holiness. This time it's by a guy named John. And in his vision, we see the whole world made completely new. The entire earth has become God's temple. And Ezekiel's river is there, flowing out of God's presence, immersing all of creation, removing all impurity, and bringing everything back to life. So Jesus is revealing something New, something new to people's understanding about what it means to be holy. And Jesus says something very interesting at one time to uh, his listeners. He says, unless your righteousness, unless your holiness, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom. What is he talking about? Now, Jesus does not say we need to be better at following the law than the Pharisees. Because nobody could top the Pharisees, right? They were sticklers. No, Jesus was saying that unless our righteousness, our holiness, is on a whole different level, then we will not be able to enter the kingdom of God. And so here's what's going on. The the Pharisees were a group of very well-respected leaders in the Jewish community. They were part of the ruling class. And they were religious purists. They were very, very devout. And they believed, as we saw in the video, that holiness was about separation, about protecting yourself, about insulating yourself from sources of defilement. And so they were very concerned with avoiding any kind of contagion from the world around. In other words, it was a holiness that was based on fear, But here, Jesus demonstrates a holiness based on power and freedom from fear. So for Jesus, it is holiness that is contagious, not uncleanliness. It's the power of the kingdom of God is transforming power. It is not power that needs protection through rigorous separation. Richard Benner says that Jesus calls us to projective holiness, not protective holiness, right? In other words, the holiness of Jesus is invasive, conquering power. It has the power to wash away our sins and make us holy. And the spirit of Jesus has the power to overcome death, not be consumed by death, but to overcome death and raise us to life. Jesus shows us that it is the holiness of God that is contagious, Not the other way around. Not not the contamination of the world that that we have to worry about. Our call, our call, listen very carefully. Our call is to infect the world with love, grace, mercy, and goodness, and compassion. We are on the offensive, not the defensive. Before Jesus, evil was something to be avoided. But with Jesus, evil is something to be confronted and challenged and overcome. The power of Christ is transforming power. Now, with that in mind, let's go back to the triumphal entry. 
With the, keeping in mind the story of Jesus freeing a man who had been enslaved by a thousand demons. Now let's read the triumphal entry with fresh eyes. So Jesus rides into Jerusalem seated on a donkey. And the crowds are going wild. And they spread their cloaks and they wave palm branches. And they say, Hosanna, save us now, we pray. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. People are expecting great things. Jesus is going to make things right. He's going to fix everything. Jesus is the promised king of his people. And he's not hiding it anymore. He's identifying himself publicly. And everybody's thrilled. And they're all following. What's he going to do first? Where's he going to go? And the first place that Jesus goes to is the temple. Now, There are temples and synagogues in just about every Jewish community around the world now, but in Jesus' day, there was only one temple, and it was in Jerusalem. And the building itself was pretty small, but around it was this huge complex of uh, a courtyard and porticos and columns and staircases filling up the size of about 10 football fields. I mean, it was enormous. It, It took up a huge section of Jerusalem. And people from near and far, pilgrims from all over, Jews and Gentiles, would come to this temple. It was the epicenter of the Jewish faith, the most sacred place on earth for them. Somehow in this temple, heaven and earth would somehow touch. It was the most sacred place for them. And this is where Jesus goes first. Now, why is that? When a king enters a city, his first stop is the royal palace, right? And for Jesus, that was the temple, his father's house. But when he gets there, what he does shocks everybody. We read in Mark 11, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area. And he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. You have made it a den of robbers. What kind of king is this? Who would trash his own palace? I mean, didn't Jesus come riding on a donkey, right? An indication that his intentions were to bring peace and not war. Is he confused? No, he's not confused. He's angry. The Son of God has come to his father's house, and what he sees infuriates him. He sees two things. Number one, he sees exploitation. His people are exploiting the poor. So at that time, uh, there were money changers in the temple, and here's what's going on. Jewish law required that every man should uh, pay a temple tax of half a shekel, half a shekel, which is a Jewish coin. The problem was that the Jews lived under Roman rule, so they used Roman currency. And Roman coins bore the image of who? Caesar, the emperor who was worshipped as a deity. So it would have been sacrilegious to take this coin with Caesar's face and give that to God, offer it to God. So booths were set up in the temple where you could exchange your Roman coins for Jewish half-shekels and fulfill the law. Well, if you're a money changer and you've got hundreds and thousands of people who require your services, 
you have the opportunity to make some serious coin. See what I did there? <laughs> We're talking about markups of several days' wages. So, also according to the law, when you came to the temple, you were required to bring two doves or pigeons to offer as a sacrifice. But it was hard to bring those birds from all these distant areas of Judea, because they died by the time you got there, right? You can't offer dead birds to God. And, and so this other business, a lucrative business, was set up to sell the birds at the temple, right? And they would charge an arm and a leg and maybe a wing. Let's say a bird outside the temple costs four cents. But in the temple, you have to pay 75 cents. You've got to buy the ones in the temple. You can't buy the other ones. And the average daily wage is a penny. And you have to pay 75 days wages in order to come before God. The vast majority of people coming to the temple are poor. So here's what's going to happen. People have figured out a way to monetize faith. To monetize faith. Religion has become a business. An opportunity for the greedy to prey on the poor. And Jesus is angry. Here's the other thing that was going on. It wasn't just uh, extortion. It was also a culture of exclusion. The problem was not just what was happening, but where it was happening. Okay? The temple consisted of four main sections. First, you had the court of the Gentiles. And in this place, people of any culture or religion, in other words, non-Jews, could gather. They could hear teachers. They could exchange money. They could buy sacrificial animals. Then you have the court of women, and only Jewish women could come in here. Gentiles were forbidden to enter upon pain of death. Then you have the court of Israel, where the Jewish men could come. And then you had the court of priests. Priests only could go in there. This is the actual temple building, the innermost, what we, what we call the Holy of Holies. We read in Hebrews 9-7, Only the high priest entered the inner room, and only once a year, and never without blood, and he offered for himself and for the sins of the people that had committed in ignorance. So where is Jesus? When all of this, where is he overturning all the tables? He's in the Hieron, the court of the Gentiles. And this was the closest that a non-Jew could get to the actual temple, and therefore the closest that a non-Jew symbolically could get to God. That's as far as they could go. This is where people who were not Jewish would come to participate. Now, some of these people had turned from worshiping the Roman gods. They had trusted in the God of the Bible. Some of them didn't know the God of the Bible. They were just curious. They want to know, like, what is, who is this person you're talking about? And they were curious about sin and forgiveness, and today we'd call them non-Christians, right? And they got the cheap seats, they were over in the court of the Gentiles. And the temple authorities, when they're trying to figure out where are we going to put the money changers? Where are we going to put the uh, bird vendors? Where we, there's nowhere to put them. Ah, you know what? Just put, her in the, put them over in the, uh, uh, in the court of Gentiles. In the Holy of Holies? No, don't, you can't put them there. Temple, court of Israel? No, you can't put them there. The court of women? No, don't put them. Just put them over you know, where the non-Jews are supposed to be. They didn't care. This was the place where evangelism was supposed to be happening. This is the only place that non-Jews could hear a rabbi teaching the scriptures. But instead of evangelism happening, business was happening. And it turned into a flea market. And all, all the, all, while the unchurched 
people, people who are curious about God, come into this place, what do they see? They see church people haggling and arguing with one another and fighting and bickering and conducting business and price gouging. And that's what they see. And it's all so ungodly and greedy. It's extortion at the expense of poor people coming to meet with God. And Jesus is absolutely furious. Because God had promised Abraham, the father of Israel, long ago that all nations on earth one day would be (coughs) blessed through him. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. And he had come to make a way for all people to be reconciled to God. And this is why Mark records Jesus saying, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for who? For all nations. Jesus isn't just angry that the temple is being used to exploit people. He's also angry that it's being used to exclude people. The church has to be a place where all people can meet with God, a place for Jew and Gentile, churched and unchurched, for Christians and Buddhists and Muslims and Hindus and agnostics and atheists. The church exists for all these people to come and hear the gospel, to come and and know and love and serve and worship the one true God. And so here's the implications for us. We as a church need to create sacred space for people who are curious, people who don't think like we do, who act like we do, places where they can seek God without judgment and receive love without condition. And we have to protect those spaces. You see, when our churches... Our programs only benefit ourselves. When we become a social club for us and our kids, we've repeated the very same sins in the temple of Jerusalem. We've occupied the court of the Gentiles and used it to conduct our own business, to benefit ourselves and our families, and the unchurched get slowly squeezed out of the community until there's no space left for them. And Jesus has something to say about that, and he will shake things up in our churches to make things right. So what does Jesus do? He overturns the tables. He drives out the money changers and those selling doves. And he prevents people from using the temple as a shortcut. That's what they were doing. They're just using the temple now as a shortcut through the city. Jesus came to bring peace. But not peace with corruption and evil. He came to bring peace with sinners who knew the Savior, yes. But never peace with Satan. The father of lies, never. So, do you see a parallel here? Do you see a parallel between Jesus? Listen very closely. Do you see a parallel between Jesus cleansing a man who is being held hostage by a thousand evil spirits and Jesus cleansing a spiritual community that was being held hostage? by greed and self-interest and all kinds of other issues. Jesus says the kingdom of God is coming and it is advancing against the gates of hell. No one is going to be able to stand in the way of the kingdom of God, not even the church. And if Jesus' beloved bride, the church, has become infected with selfishness and pride, if we have forgotten who we are, why we are here. We become so enamored with ourselves that we become blind to suffering 
and lost our moral courage, Jesus will come and he will drive out the darkness and infuse his church with life again. When the kingdom of God comes up against the kingdom of darkness, Jesus will win every time. Now listen, sometimes it's an individual who is held captive by their personal demons. Some of you, that may apply to you. You you have been held captive by your own inner personal demons. And you you don't know how to get free of that. And, And as a result, you feel like you're living in the realm of the dead. And some of us become a danger to ourselves and everybody around us. And Jesus comes to set the captives free. Sometimes it's not an individual, it's an entire community that is held captive by greed and selfishness and self-righteousness and pride and fear and addiction and legalism and prejudice. And our demons can be legion. They can be many. And as a result, our entire community can live in the realm of the dead and there's no life. And Jesus sets us free from captivity and cleanses the temple. That's us. And he puts his spirit in place of the spirits that have deceived and enslaved us. He brings life where there is death. Jesus did not come so that we might get a ticket to heaven. He came to take our dead hearts, our cold hearts of stone, and give us hearts of flesh, of compassion, soft, gentle, loving, pure, holy. Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the grave so that we could, not just so that we could be saved from death, from the power of death. He came so that we would be set free from the power of sin. Because it is sin that leads to death. Have you been set free from the power of sin in your life? What personal demons are you struggling with? And has Jesus cast those out of you yet? Have you been transformed by the holiness of God? Jesus came to bring the dead to life. Are you alive? Now, at the beginning of my message, I shared, we're going to close with this. At the beginning of my message, I shared how Jesus announced his mission in Matthew and Mark and Luke. And in all of those stories, Jesus they, they write about Jesus beginning his ministry, announcing the gospel to crowds of people, to a village, to a synagogue. But John, the gospel of John, John describes it differently. In John's gospel, Jesus announces his ministry not to a bunch of crowds in a town or a village or a synagogue. He announces the good news of the kingdom to a single person in a private conversation held in the dead of night. We read in John 3, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, and he came to Jesus at night where nobody could see. He said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God because nobody could perform the signs that you're doing if God were not with him. And Jesus replies, very truly I tell you, No one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. And then he shares a little later, 
more specifically what that means. He says, God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. And he presents Nicodemus with this good news that in Christ there is life. This series is called First Love, taken from Revelation 2. John receives a vision in which Jesus tells him to write a letter to the church of Ephesus. I know your deeds. I know your hard work. I know your perseverance. But I hold this against you. You've, you've forgotten your first love. You need to repent and do the things you did at first. And the first thing that we did, the first thing that we did, when we came to know and love Jesus, is first we allowed ourselves to be amazed and just inspired by this man. And we began to sense that this Jesus was a man of power and authority. And Jesus, as we get to know him, begins to reveal what is broken about us. You see, that's what light does. Jesus is the light, and he comes into our lives, and he exposes in us what is broken, what is sick. He illuminates our demons. And the closer that we come to Jesus, the more alive we begin to feel. And whatever spirits have held us in captivity. They, they are driven out, sometimes gradually, sometimes in an instant. They just run. But as Jesus, the Holy One of Israel, the Son of God, begins to take hold of our minds and our hearts, it's like this, it's like this fog begins to lift from our eyes and we realize that we're standing in the presence of God. And Jesus says, come, follow me, and we hear his invitation to, to rescue us, to save us from sin and death. And we hear this call. And Jesus says, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. You have to start all over. And at its heart, returning to our first love simply means saying, I'm willing to start all over. Every single day of my life, I'm willing to start my day with a blank slate and say, Jesus, have your way with me. Jesus says, repent and believe this good news that the kingdom of God is here and that the holiness of God is going to overtake you and change everything about you. So my call today on Palm Sunday as we remember Jesus and the conquering power of the holiness of our God coming into Jerusalem, coming against this man who has been tormented by evil spirits. The invitation really is for Jesus to keep riding and keep advancing until he penetrates the deepest parts of your soul. It's not welcoming him into Jerusalem. It's welcoming him into your life. You're saying, just whatever you want to do, Jesus, come. You're riding, you're coming, and the power of God is coming over me. Hosanna, save us. Save me, God. Save me, God. That's where all this starts. Let's pray. Jesus, some called you teacher. 
Rabbi, many eventually called you Lord. But our relationship really begins with you first when we call you Savior. And like the crowds on Palm Sunday, we say, Hosanna, Jesus, save me. Save me from myself. Rescue me from my own demons. Infuse my spirit with your holiness, your goodness. Overtake every part of my life and make me whole and alive. Come, Lord Jesus. Hosanna, save us now. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord.